Well, good morning again. Um, so this rainy Sunday, but I have good news for people that care. Um, football starts today. Amen. Hallelujah. Okay. Some of you care. Some of you don't. That's fine. What are you going to do today? Just sit and do nothing? Watch football all day. Um, so with football starting today, I was thinking about um, a time I went to Atlanta to go watch a Ravens game. I, I go to a fair amount of, of Ravens games um, in, at M&T Bank um, because my dad has season tickets, so that's why I go. So some Sundays you might see me like not say bye to you, not say hi or bye as you're leaving because I'm running out the door to try to get to that one o'clock game. Ravens games aren't great to go to when you have a job like mine, but I find a way to get there. Don't worry, I sacrifice to get there. Anyways, I just tell the, the worship unit has to tear down without me, which they're used to. Anyways, okay. Um, but I've been to like um, Washington to to watch Ravens game there um, back when they were the Redskins. Now the Commanders, um, and that didn't feel like an away game because <laughs> you, you Commander fans know that it's not worth rooting for them. And, um, and I've been to Atlanta. I remember going to Atlanta um, uh, years ago, a long time ago, maybe 10 years ago, 12 years ago, and uh, we spent a whole weekend there, myself, my brother, and a friend of mine who's up with the kids right now, um, and we were pumped. We were watching the game, but I understand when you go to Ravens, when you go to another stadium, I understand the etiquette that you should have. Some people don't. I understand it. Here's the etiquette. You are in another person's stadium, so you cheer for your team, you root for your team, all that kind of stuff, but you're respectful. You understand you're, this is not your territory, so you stand, you clap, you do your thing, but you don't trash talk. You don't do any of that stuff because you're a, you're a, respect, you're a respectful fan, okay? Maybe Commander fans, you don't do that, but us as Ravens fans, we're respectful, so we don't do that. And so... I'm there, and we're just cheering. We're kind of talking to all the Atlanta fans around us. It's a very close game. It's going back and forth. And then three other Ravens fans find us, and they come to sit with us because there's some seats behind us. And we're like, yeah, come sit. So we're kind of doing that. And I was a respectful fan of my brother my friend. The three behind us were not those fans. They were trash talking. They were yelling. They were screaming. And we were winning at the time. So, like, no one in Atlanta is saying much back. And they're yelling. They're, they're being obnoxious. And I'm like, oh, and we're kind of associated with them. And then la- late in the game... Atlanta comes back and scores, and then all of a sudden, all the fans turn to look at us, and I turn around to these fans who have been trash-talking the whole time, and they're gone. I don't know where they went. So all I know is all of Atlanta saw myself, my brother, and my friend, and just started destroying us because we were the enemy in enemy's territory, and they were destroying us. So we just sit there and just kind of take it. We end up losing the game, so we go to to find the metro. We don't know where we're going. And we're like, I think it's this way. And we didn't realize the way we were going was right through the tailgate. I don't even know much about tailgating, but there's a lot of drinking that happens during those tailgates, especially when you win. And just me and two other people just walking with our Ravens jerseys. Everyone's like yelling at us like, oh, good luck. Hey, whatever. And we walk all the way through. and We get to a point where we're like, oh no, we went the wrong way. We've got to go back. <laughs> so we walked back. And man, they, would, they let us have it at that point. They were like, oh, you lost? You don't know where you're going, whatever? And we're like, I just want to go home. This is miserable at this point. It's past the point of fun. We finally find a way to the metro. We sit down. We're like, all right, we're finally safe from all of the other team, the, the enemies of our football team. And we're sitting there, and the door's about to close. And somebody just walking by and sees us sitting there. And he looks into the metro and just goes, and then walks away. It's like, I hate Atlanta. I'm never coming back here. And now I still do not like the Atlanta Falcons for that reason. So today we're continuing our series on the Sermon on the Mount. And we've been going through chapter 5. We started it last week. Uh, we're going to be skipping all the way down to the end of chapter 
5. So if you have your Bibles, you can um, prepare yourself and a chapter 5 or your Bible apps. And this month, I said it last week, if you weren't here, I'm encouraging you to read the Sermon on the Mount in its entirety once a week for the rest of this month. Once a week for the rest of this month because um, I'm not going to be able to cover nearly enough. I could spend a year on the Sermon on the Mount. It wouldn't be enough. We, I, we decided to pick the best message Jesus ever preached and the longest one. And so let's do that in four weeks. And that was not a good idea. So I'm kind of picking and choosing a little bit here. So I encourage you to read it. The whole thing is, th- it's only three chapters once a week for this entire month as we get ready for school coming back. School's already back and kind of getting back to our routines. Last week, we started with the Beatitudes. If you missed that, you can go to impactchurchmd.com slash sermons, and you can find the podcast and the, the video there. Um, after the Beatitudes, I'm just going to kind of give you a little review. We're not going to cover it. Um, Jesus talks about salt and light, and he says, as representatives of, of him, as representatives of Jesus' kingdom, we are called to be salt and light. And the reason why you use salt and light is because salt always preserves and light always shines. Then he starts talking about the law. And when he talks about the law, he's talking about the Mosaic law. If you've ever read the first five books of the Old Testament, there's all these lists of things you are supposed to do and not supposed to do. That's the law. And so he talks about this law that the Israelites live by, that the Jewish culture live by, um, and he talks about how that law is now over. It fulfilled its purpose, but now that Jesus, Jesus is here, that law is done. We're not living by that anymore. Instead, Jesus is going to give a very strict command. Jesus purposely addresses wrong understandings that the Israelites and that the Jewish people, um, wrong understandings that they had about the law, which translated to wrong living of the law. And he gets really practical here. And again, we're not going to be able to cover this. I encourage you to read it. But uh, first he talks about murder, and he keeps saying things like, you heard this, but I'm going to tell you this. You heard the law say it this way, but I'm going to tell you what the law, what, what we're doing now. And he starts with murder. You heard that you shouldn't murder. The law says do not murder anybody. But I say, if you hate anybody in your heart, then you have murdered them. It's like, okay, this is a whole different ballgame now. He, and then he keeps going. You heard not to commit adultery. Again, that's the law. It says do not commit adultery. But I say, if you've ever lusted after anyone in your heart, you have committed adultery in your heart. And he keeps going and going and going to a point where it's like, well, everyone does that. Everyone is angry at somebody. Everybody lusts at, at times. Then he keeps going with divorce. He talks about oaths. He talks about revenge. All, this, all these things that he's talking about is, le- is leaving us to a point where we can say, I can't live up to that expectation. I can't possibly do that, which is the point. And then Jesus, if it wasn't hard enough, gives us the hardest part to live, and that's what we're going to be picking up. And, and uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, here's what Jesus says next. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So what he's doing here, the audience listening to this would know exactly what he's talking about. In Leviticus, Leviticus 19, 18, it tells them that they need to love their neighbor as their self. But you know what you do with your enemy, what they would preach? You kill them. You, you conquer them. You, you hate them. The religious leaders who taught the Torah, they started to preach that, yeah, you have to love your neighbor as in your fellow Israelites, but your enemy, you don't love them. You hate them. You despise them. They are an enemy of you, and they are an enemy of God. And they fell into the same trap that we do. For us, it's, it might be easy to love our neighbor. 
maybe for some of us, not literally our neighbor, because some of us don't have great neighbors. I luckily have great neighbors. Some of my neighbors are sitting right over there. Um, they, I've never given them anything. All I do is call them when I, my lawnmower is broken and stuff like that. Thanks, Tyler Johnson. But I have other neighbors who are great. I have a retired firefighter and a retired nurse that live right next door to us. Great neighbors to have. Person across the street, I don't know what he does for a living, but all I know is he always is able to get like stuff from Home Depot and Lowe's that has like a little dent in it or um, it was a display model and they missed like the cap of something and they can't sell it. So they recycle it and he takes it home and he says, hey, do you want a brand new grill? And I say, yes, please. And he brings it over. I've gotten all these tools. So if anyone needs anything, let me know. I can hook you up. He tried to give me a, a fridge the other day. It just couldn't fit. It was awesome. Anyways, that's a great neighbor to have. You guys should have a neighbor like that. Some of you might not love your literal neighbor, but, but when we're talking about neighbors here, we're talking about, about people like us, just like the Israelites had their group. They had the other Israelites. That was their neighbors. It's easy to love people that are just like us. It's easy to love people that like the same thing that you do. It's easy to love people who agree with you politically. It's easy to love people that agree with your stance on creation and the flood and homosexuality and abortion. It's easy to love those people that agree with you on whatever stance. It's easy to love them. And it's also easy to demonize, avoid, tear down, and even hate the people on the other side, the ones that don't act like you, the ones on the opposite side of the political aisle, the ones whose theology does not line up with yours. It's easy to demonize them. Jesus continues, verse 44, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. Here's another way we can, we can say that. Everyone is your neighbor, not just the people like you, not just the people close to you, not just the people that's easy to love. Everyone is your neighbor. So that includes your enemy. So if our neighbor includes our enemy, then we have to love our enemy also. When, when we read this, it's easy to think, well, who exactly is my neighbor? And that's exactly what people asked um, Jesus. You can, you can read it later on in the gospel. He says, well, when you say neighbor, who is your neighbor? And he tells a story that we talked about last week, the Good Samaritan. And I love that he uses the Good Samaritan, and here's, here's why I love it. So very quickly, there's a person that is in need. Two people come by, and they walk by him. They don't help. And then the third person is a Samaritan, and he comes, and he sees him, and he helps the person that is in need. The reason why Jesus used Samaritan for this specific reason is that Jews listening hated Samaritans. That was their enemy. They hated Samaritans. There's a long history. For us, it would be like the story of the good, woke, liberal Democrat, or the good, far-right, MAGA Republican. Whichever side you're not on, that's what it would be like for you. That one, the good Samaritan. A Samaritan was an enemy of a Jewish person, and Jesus forced Jewish people, Israelites, to admit that their enemy was the good neighbor. So out of the story, out of the three, which one of the three was the neighbor? And they wouldn't even admit it. They said the third one, because they don't want to say the word Samaritan. Now, I'm not saying Samaritan. The third one, the last one you gave. We need to understand this, because if we do not believe that our enemy is our neighbor, then we naturally do what we do with enemies. You wish bad on them, and you work towards bad happening to them. Most of us say, well, that's fine, because I don't really have an enemy. I'm not like a superhero with an arch nemesis. I don't have like the enemy, that's what we normally think of, but we don't use the word enemy when we think of the, about people, but we all have enemies, and here's why. An enemy 
is someone who is against us in heart or action. Anyone who is against you in their heart or against you by the way they act towards you, that is your enemy. So if an enemy is someone who is against you in action, it's the people that sabotage you at work so that they can get promoted and you can get demoted. It's the people that spread rumors and talk badly about you behind your back. It's the people that get their friends to think badly about you. That is your enemy. But that's not only your enemy. It's also the people who has a heart against you. They secretly root for you to fail. They get joy inside when you are going through pain. They think badly about you and assume the worst in you. If that's what an enemy is, that means we all have enemies. It also means that we all have been an enemy to someone else. Jesus tells us to love our enemies because he knows we will all have enemies. And when I um, start defining the word enemy and giving you examples, my guess is someone came to your mind. Right away, you thought of somebody. It's like, oh, if that's the definition, I gave some examples, you're like, oh, I thought of that person. I know exactly who they're talking about. I want you to keep thinking about that person, someone who has harmed you in action, someone who has harmed you in thought. And here's my guess. My guess is with that enemy, you haven't always responded correctly. That's my guess, that you haven't always responded the way you should to someone who has harmed you in action or thought. And you know why? Their actions hurt our feelings. That's why. So we think if we, our feelings are hurt, that we need to retaliate because what makes our feelings feel better? Their hurt feelings. They hurt my feelings, I'm gonna make their feelings also hurt. Or maybe you're a better person, you don't retaliate. You just leave it alone. We just ignore it, we say, you know what? I, I've got this loving my neighbor thing down because I'm not retaliating like I want to. But Jesus didn't call us to just simply not retaliate. Jesus says, no, 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 you need to love them. Like the enemy, the one that you're thinking about, the one that you're a better person because you didn't do anything back, you need to not just back up. You need to actively love them. Actively love them. Then we might think, well, I can't do that because my feelings are hurt. I don't have the feeling of love, so how can I possibly love back when I don't have the feelings of love? So I, I, at best, I can not hurt back, but I don't know if I can do that. And Jesus says, no, no, you love your enemy. Say, so, yeah, but I don't have the feeling. Here's what I would say back to that. So? Who said you need the feeling of love to actively love? Who said that your, your feelings and, your, and love is completely tied together? See, too many of us regard love solely as a feeling. It's those butterflies we got when we first got married, when we first met that person. It's, it's that honeymoon phase. That's what love is. And when that feeling goes away, we think, well, then I can't love anymore because I don't have the feeling of love, so I guess I'm not in love anymore. We tie our, our, our idea of love directly to our feelings, but I'm here to tell you, love is not a feeling. It's a choice that we make. You choose to love when you don't feel like it. I would say you choose to love especially when you don't feel like it. Jesus continues in verse 45. To make it even harder, here's what he says. He causes his son to rise on the evil, on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even the pagans do that? That's what he's saying. Anyone can love when it's a feeling. Anyone can do that. There's nothing special about loving when you feel love. Anyone can do that. Everyone does that. Anyone can do that. 
But if you confess to be a follower of Jesus, if you're here today and you've accepted the gospel, you, you believe in Jesus Christ, his death, his resurrection, you say, I'm going to follow him. If that's you, you are now called to make the choice to love when the feeling of love is absent. You're called to a higher standard. You have accepted the grace of Christ through his death, so we believe that we have access to the power of the Holy Spirit, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. How can you have that belief, which the rest of the world doesn't, and how can you have access to that power, which we, we believe the rest of the world doesn't, and then simply continue to act like the rest of the world by loving only when you feel like it? I believe if we, have, if we as Christians are truly lived out the message of Jesus, truly lived out what Jesus is calling us to do here, the world would look at us differently. If you want to stand out as a follower of Jesus instead of blend in, it's about loving your enemies. Because listen, you are not different from the rest of the world simply because you have Christian under religion on your Facebook page. I looked it up. 70% of Americans claim to be Christians. You're not different. You're in the majority, actually, if you do that. You aren't different because you believe that a guy actually died and, and rose again, and the rest of the world might look at you and go, well, that's silly, which they do, right? But here's what I would say. I don't think that's silly, but a lot of people believe silly things, and, it's okay, and we know them, right? Some people here think the, not here, hopefully, maybe, some people think the world is flat. That's silly, right? Like, we would all be like, it's not flat. And now scientists are spending millions of dollars to prove again that the world is not flat, but some people believe the world is flat. Some people believe that Lamar Jackson can't throw a football. That's silly. He can obviously throw a football. Watch the Colts game last year. He, he watch him this year, and he's going to make the Ravens pay him every dollar we've ever had, okay? Lamar Jackson can throw a football. Some people believe that Nickelback is a good band. It's silly, but that's fine. You can believe it, but it's silly. So just because you believe something that the rest of the world or other people would look at and be like, well, that's not true. That's silly. Just because you believe that doesn't make you special. Everyone believes something that someone else would consider silly. You aren't different because you are good at arguing, debating, or yelling your theological opinions. All of us have a topic we could argue about and win the argument. Come at me with that Lamar Jackson comment. I will destroy you with it, okay? We all have those things. What will make you stand out as a follower of Jesus is by loving your enemy. Instead of the world looking at us like, man, just a bunch of hypocritical, judgmental people. You know what they could start saying if we actually live this out? They would say, you know, I necessarily believe what they believe. I necessarily believe that Jesus actually, this Jesus person actually died and came back like three days later. I don't know if I believe that, but man, those people are loving. You know, I, I, uh, I cursed one, and she didn't say anything back. I hit one of them, and he didn't retaliate. Like, I, I, I don't believe what they're believing, but they sure are loving. In my old house, um, we would have a lot of Jehovah Witnesses come to our house. You know what Jehovah Witnesses? Um, they, I guess, technically are a Christian denomination, but there's so many things they believe that are complete opposite of the majority of, of Christianity. But what they're really known for is their evangelism. Specifically, their door-to-door -door evangelism, as in they will come to your house and two of them will come, they'll knock on the door, they'll have a pamphlet, and they'll talk to you about becoming a Jehovah Witness. And um, at, at our old house, they came all the time. It was like once a month they came. And here's how I normally respond when Jehovah Witness camp comes. Um, the first thing I do, sometimes I just lock the door, turn the lights out, and pretend I'm not home. The same thing I do when that guy comes because they're making a deal with a roof that they did down the street, you know that guy? 
do the same thing. Just lock the door, like, okay, I'm not home, buddy, okay? Um, I'll give you a free estimate, like, okay, I'm not, I know this game. Sometimes I do that, or number two, here's what I do, and you can do this if you want, but I'll answer the door and say, I'm a pastor at a church, and they go, okay, we're not going to bother, because they assume that I, I know a fair amount about the Bible. So if you want to get one of them out of there quick, just tell them you're a pastor at a church, okay? But at our old house, they would come all the time, and specifically, there was one lady who would come once a month, around once a month, once, or, once a month or every two months. It was an African-American lady who was in her 70s. She came, the first time she came, myself and um, the kids were outside, and she came, I was like, oh, oh I was trying to get them in quick, <laughs> come in, turn the lights off, be quiet. Um, she came, and I, she said hi, she was so nice, she asked my name, I said, my name's Eric, she asked for all three of my kids' names, they said their names, and I just said, yeah, I, I'm a pastor, and she said, oh, okay, great, well, here's a pamphlet, um, and we'll see you around, and that was it. She didn't really try to sell me anything, she didn't do anything, she just gave me a pamphlet, and she walked. A month later, the same lady came, and we're still outside, and she comes, and she calls me by my name. Hi, Eric. Oh, hey, Brooklyn. Hey, Savannah, how's school going? Hey, no, like, remember their kids' names. Gave me a pamphlet, kept walking. Didn't try to sell me anything, just kind of kept moving. Another month went by. She came back, and at this point, I'm not even running. She's like, she's nice. She's like, hey, hey, how's it going? I don't remember her name, because I'm terrible with names, and she always remembered my names, which is terrible. So she would say, oh, hey, Eric, hey, and your wife, Erica, haha, Eric and Erica, and then Brooklyn, Savannah, no, and she always did it constantly. I got to the point where I never believed what she believed, but I didn't run away anymore. Because she was nice, she was loving, she was genuine. I, if she had an agenda, I didn't sense it. Why doesn't the world think of us that way? Is it because we haven't lived out the message Jesus called us to live? We are called to model Jesus, to show Jesus. We are never more like Jesus than when we love our enemies. We are never more like him when we do that. Jesus did this his entire ministry. He consistently built a bridge between himself and the people that were considered enemies. He was always hanging out with sinners. He, he would meet a tax collector, call him to be part of his group, and then say, where are the rest of your tax collector friends? I want to go hang out and party with your tax collector friends. And he went to the party with the tax collectors. That's what he did. He, he spoke and ministered to a Samaritan woman. Again, a, a Samaritan, that's an enemy of the Jews, and he was, a, he was a Jew, but no, he spoke and ministered to a Samaritan woman. So let's update this for us, because that might not translate. It would be like Jesus hanging out or going to a party with ISIS. It would be like Jesus being best friends with Trump or Biden, depending on what side of the political aisle you're on. It would be like Jesus loving the person that's in your mind right now that is your enemy. It'd be like that. Jesus constantly loved our, his enemies. If we only love the people who are like us, people from our nation, people from our ethnicity, people from, from my socioeconomic status, from my political party, from my denomination, from my musical tastes, from my beliefs, then we are no different from the rest of the world who doesn't believe in a God. If we only love and like people who are like us, it reinforces the tribalism that has become so rampant in our world. The tribalism that says, this is who I identify as, so I'm going to check off everything in this group's list. I'm only going to stay with this group because I'm comfortable with, the group, with this group. I'm never going to go outside of this group. And this wasn't hard enough. Jesus wraps all this up by saying, just, just throw away a line just to let you guys know. Um, also, by the way, the last verse he says before we get to chapter 6, uh, be perfect, therefore is your heavenly Father is perfect. Okay? So love your enemies and also never mess up ever. Be perfect. Okay? That's, that's the standard here. What is Jesus doing here? Because when I read this, I go, come on, Jesus. This is ridiculous now. This is my, now I got to just be perfect. I, I can't even 
mess up. And here's what Jesus is actually doing here. He is talking to the original audience. He had just talked about the law, and here's what he's saying. If you want to live by the law, you have to live by it 100%. You can't get one thing wrong. Whatever the law says, you have to follow it 100%. You have to be perfect, or it's not enough. You have to be 100%. That's the score you got to get on the test. But we aren't perfect. So Jesus had to come. And if you could be perfect, Jesus wouldn't have to come and die. But since we aren't, thank God he is perfect because, because of his perfect will, he sent his son and his perfect life was sacrificed for our imperfect lives. So Jesus is, again is saying, here's what is required of you, perfection. Here's what you need to aim for. Even though you're not going to do it, because, and I'll be the sacrifice because you can't make this, you can't get to this level because you keep messing up, this is the goal. This is what you're aiming for. Even though you can't be perfect, we are called to constantly strive for it. And what are we striving for? We are striving to love our neighbors perfectly. And if we're going to love our neighbors perfectly, that includes our enemies. If you want to know where you are in your spiritual maturity, don't look at your Bible reading plan. Don't look at how much you've given. Don't look at your generosity, how much you've tithed. Don't look at your church attendance. Those are all good things. You should be doing those. Those are spiritual disciplines you should be doing. But your spiritual maturity is directly correlated with how you love people you consider your enemy. Directly correlated with that. Jesus showed us what true love looks like because Jesus died for his enemies. Here's how Paul says it in Romans chapter 5 which is, this is the gospel. This is what we believe. This is why we do what we do. Romans chapter 5, starting to verse 7. Here's how Paul says it. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though some might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good, like the best person. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his, what's the word there? Say it. Enemies. While we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us, what's that word? Friends of God. This is the gospel message. This is why we are here. This is why we worship. This is why we give. This is why we serve. This is why we love. Because when we made ourselves enemies of God, when we did that by our sin, Christ came and died for us. Aren't you glad that while we were God's enemy, which we were, our sin put us in direct opposition of God, but while we were God's enemy, Christ still loved us, and Christ still came and died for us. If you accept that love, you need to be ready to give that love to your enemies. I'm going to take it one step further. If we refuse to love our enemies, you need to ask yourself if you've actually received the gospel. Because that's what the gospel is. When we were enemies, Christ loved us. So if we can't love our enemies, we'd ask if we actually believe the gospel. So I'm going to give you a very practical 
an easy-to-do homework assignment that you're going to hate doing. My favorite assignments to give. I want to encourage you. When I said the enemy, that person you've been thinking about this entire time, whoever that is, maybe it's a couple people, whoever it is, for the next 30 days, every day, here's what I want you to do. Pray for your enemy. Every day. Whoever that person is in your mind, I want you to pray for them every day. That enemy who's worked against you, that, that enemy who has spoken bad, that enemy who wronged you, that enemy who hurt you, that is real hurt, real pain, I'm not diminishing any of that. I want you to pray for them every day. And I want you to pray, God, I pray that you just give them what they deserve. I don't want you to pray something like that. I want you to pray, God, I just pray that they, I don't want you to do that. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to humbly pray for your enemy to be blessed. I want you to humbly pray for your enemy's safety. I want you to humbly pray for your enemy to be happy every day. And you know what's going to happen the first day? You're going to go, God, I, I, I don't want to do this, but God, I pray for, and you might, might struggle to, to say it, God, I pray for this person that they just, you bless them today. And it might be hard. I get it. Every day. Because here's, here's what I believe will happen. First day is going to be hard. Second day is going to be hard. It's going to continue to be hard. But by day 29 and day 30, they might not change at all. In fact, they probably won't change at all. But you will. Your heart will change. You can't control them. You can't control your enemy. But your heart will begin to change. That's what I need to do it for 30 days. Don't do it for a week and expect anything to happen. You need to consistently do it every day. See, Jesus knows that when we love our enemies, it changes us at a heart level, which is the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount is not just a bunch of rules that we now have to figure out how to follow in order to be in God's kingdom. It's God saying, the standard is this. It's an impossible standard that you can never live by, but thank God I was here because I can live by it. It's an impossible standard. But when you do this, you're going to mess it up. You're going to have trouble at times. But when you consistently do this, your heart's going to change. And before you know it, that enemy of yours that you've had trouble loving will be a little easier to love. Not because you're so good, not because you are so powerful, but because the spirit that lives inside of you has changed you. See, that's what I believe as followers, followers of Jesus, we are called to do exactly what Jesus told us to do. To practically and realistically love the people who have hurt you, your enemies, the ones that are hard to love. Like Jesus said, anyone can love people that love you back. Anyone can do that. We are called to a higher standard. And that higher standard is always submitting a little more. That higher standard is always pushing our needs down. That higher standard is always forgiving when we don't want to forgive. It is always loving when we don't want to love. It's giving when we don't want to give. That higher standard we're called to do is not so that we can be higher. We push ourselves down so when we live by the higher standard, he is shown more. That's what we're called to do. So this week, whoever that enemy is, starting today, I'm going to give you some time right now to pray for your enemy whoever that person is. Pray that they are blessed. Pray for them wholeheartedly. Pray for them like you would pray for the person you love the most. 
So at this time, I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up. And I'm just going to give you some time. Between you and God right now, today being day one of, day thir- of 30 days, to pray for your enemy. Take this time to pray.